0: How's everybody? <laughs> that sounded so labored. It was—it's good. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh that sounded like people were tired. So uh, that's okay. We saw the sun yesterday. That was nice, right? I haven't even—is it out today? I don't even—I haven't been out there in a while. No. Yeah, kind of halfway. It's funny. I was walking out of Just Love the other day, and it was—I mean—it was partly cloudy at best the other day. And I walked out and there was these two girls that walked out right behind me and they were like, oh my gosh, it's so bright out here. And it hit me. I'm like, we are really sun deprived right now because I think it's like an overcast. You know, we've become vampires or something, you know, like we can't even like handle the sun anymore. It's, it's so foreign to us now. But um, anyways, it was nice to see it the other day. Uh, glad you guys are here. We are in the book of Matthew. If you've never been to this church before, what we do is we will take a book of the Bible and um, we'll go through it. Word by word, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through to the end. We're in a book right now that I feel like um, you could make a strong argument that it's probably the most important book of the Bible. It is the first book of the New Testament. It's called the book of Matthew, written by a guy named Matthew. And um, we're in chapter four today. The first couple of chapters are, are a story that, that most of you know, even if you're not a Christian. It's the story of Jesus' birth, the nativity story, the Christmas story, however you want to kind of frame it, but it's something that most of us have heard before, and, uh, or we've seen it in movies, or, you know, if you watch the old Peanuts Christmas story, like, you know, you heard the book of Luke read by I, whatever that Peanuts character is, and um, I just offended someone probably right now. Someone's got, like, a Peanuts tattoo somewhere on their body, and they're like, <laughs> how dare he not know that, um, but we've heard that story. Chapter three, um, we meet a guy named John the Baptist who kind of paved the way For Jesus to come. And and John the Baptist had a very short but very powerful kind of span of ministry. And then at the end of chapter 3 that we covered last week, we get this really, really beautiful scene. It's this very kind of heartwarming scene where Jesus uh, uh, submits himself to God the Father and, and, and is obedient to him and then humbles himself to John the Baptist. And we see Jesus get baptized by John and the sky opens up and the Holy Spirit comes down and we hear God say to his son, this is my dearly beloved son who I am well pleased with. And it brought up the question to us, to us in this room, how does God look at us? And so we talked about a little bit last week that, that we, we pick up these identities from the, from the world, right? You know, I'm I'm white or I'm conservative or liberal or I'm rich or I'm poor or I'm heterosexual or homosexual. And we we find our our purpose and we find our identity in all these worldly things. And we talked about last week that that God wants to shed the worldly identities and pick up something that is eternal, right? That we are his son, his daughter, that we are created in the image of the king of kings, right? So we talked about how God sees us, how God loves us. This week, we're going to talk about three different things. We're in chapter four and It's interesting, we get out of this sweet baptism scene into Jesus is gonna go face-to-face with the devil in chapter four at the beginning. And it's really interesting. But we're gonna end on these three different things. And I think all of us will fall into kind of one of these camps at the end of this. The first one is, we're gonna talk about a proclamation. And I'll explain a little bit more what that is, but maybe some of us in this room need an invitation or a a proclamation uh, to be welcomed into this family. The second thing that some of us might need is we may need to go deeper into the teachings of Christ. Maybe we've accepted that Jesus is our savior, but we haven't really dug into what he tells us to do, how to live. And then the third thing we're gonna talk about is healing. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what healing is, so we'll talk about the various ways that God heals us or may not heal us sometimes, okay? So that's what we're gonna focus on, three things, proclamation, teaching, healing today. So if you have a Bible, or in the New Testament, if you crack open your Bible, you're maybe 70% through it, you'll find the book of Matthew. You should have got a notes handout at any of the entrances uh, that has virtually everything I'm going to say in it. It doesn't have the fun anecdotes that I add in there, but, uh, you know, those are just kind of on a, on a whim. And uh, I know how much you guys love my stories. So those are not in the notes. Yeah, right. Um, but everything else will be on the screens, will be in your notes. And if you have the Experience Community app on your smartphone, click on Service Time, Sermon Notes and everything is there. And people often ask, what translation of the Bible do I read from? I read from the CSB. And then people will ask, well, Corey, what's the best translation? And my answer is, the one you will read. So whichever one you have brought in here today, if you will read it, I like that. If you're hardcore and you're like, KJV, good for you, right? As long as you read it. And I'm glad that you're that smart. So uh, (laughs) anyways, whatever translation works for you, they basically all say the same thing, okay? All right, cool. I'm going to pray, and <laughs> and uh, we're going to get into it today, and we'll see where God takes us, and, and I'm really, really glad you're here, okay? All right, let me pray. Lord Jesus, Father, we love you. We thank you. God, thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room today, Lord, that they would take out a, a chunk of their weekend and come and, and hear the Word of God and study the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that for everyone in, the, in this room, Lord, that your Word touches their heart today, that it blesses them. And whatever stage we may be in, maybe we're not even in a stage yet, that God, that you would uh, speak to our hearts. Lord, we pray not just for our church, we pray for every church in our community. We pray, God, for the wonderful nonprofits that we're working with, God, especially special kids um, that we're working with this month. And um, we pray, Lord, that everything we do today, God, that it honors you and makes you proud. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have to plug uh, uh, a friend of mine in the back. uh, Rachel, who works with special kids, is not just awesome because she works with special kids. Um, She is the daughter of my favorite pastor on planet Earth, David Young. And so you should go back and say hi to uh, Rachel. She's wonderful. Her dad is wonderful. Had coffee with him the other day, which was wonderful. And uh, (laughs) it's all good. All right. Chapter four of Matthew. Let me read a little bit, and I'll go back and break it down to to the best of my abilities. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. Then the devil took him to the holy city had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. That's from the book of Psalms. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, And their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Also from the book of Deuteronomy. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and began to serve him. So let's talk about tests and let's talk about trials for a second. So after this beautiful baptism scene, right? sky opens up. Holy Spirit comes down. We hear the voice of God. Very, very beautiful moment. We see that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Why? The reason why is because tests and trials in wilderness time help our morals. They help our character build. Whenever you're looking for advice in this world, do you go looking for people that have never gone through anything tough? No. No. You find people that have been through the ringer, they have been through the hard times, they have made it out the other side and you ask them, how did you do it, right? Because hard times create morality. Hard times create character. Just like lifting weights makes your muscles stronger and bigger. So the first thing we learn is God puts us through stuff sometimes because it makes us into better people, more moral people, people of higher character. We also learn that temptation is not a sin. How do we know that? We know that Jesus was completely blameless, completely sinless. He never sinned, but he was tempted. And listen, if we get that wrong, we're gonna be extremely discouraged as Christians. If we think that simply being tempted makes us evil, we're never going to feel good about ourselves because you're gonna be tempted. It is not the temptation that is evil, it is giving in to the temptation that is evil. And we have to get that theologically correct. Another thing that we learn in this interaction, very interesting interaction between Jesus and the devil is we see that walking with God has its high points, right? Where it's easy and it's fun and it's blissful and euphoric like baptism. And then we see that sometimes following God has its low points. There are temptations. There is opposition. There are lonely times. We also see that living for God takes work The Bible equates our faith to running a marathon. Running a marathon is not an easy thing to do. It's hard, and we have to to work at it. We have to be diligent, just like we have to do with a prayer life. Just as a lot of you have found out this year, doing the fast, it is not easy. It is rewarding, but not easy. So our walk with God is very similar to what we're talking about today. There are moments of awesome victory, and there are moments when we are alone in a desert, right, metaphorically. And it takes work, and it takes determination to do what is right. It takes a lot of work to do what is right. So another thing we learn is Satan knew the Bible pretty well. And it's interesting. Satan also knew who Jesus was. He kept saying, if you are the Son of God, he knew exactly who Jesus was. How did he know who Jesus was? Lucifer, the fallen angel that we now call Satan, was created by Jesus. It says in the book of John that all things were created through Jesus' hands, including all the angels and the fallen ones that are in hell. And so Lucifer, Satan, knew exactly who Jesus was. There was no question of authenticity. Satan also knew the Word of God. He knew God's plan, and he, we know from Genesis chapter 3 that even the devil knew that God was going to send a Messiah one day. Satan knew exactly what was up. So he quoted the Word of God, And Satan quoted the word of God out of context. Now, I say this to you guys all the time. The reason why we teach the Bible the way we do in this church, the reason why we focus on culture and history and the context of the entire scripture is because if we take the scripture out of context, not only will it confuse people, it can actually be used for evil purposes. So we have to be extremely careful. When we study the word, when we teach the word, we have to teach it in context. We see the devil uses it out of context. We also see that Satan is very subtle. Satan is not like the movies, right? For you older people in here, remember the movie Legend? The devil doesn't walk in with like big old horns and he's red and kicks down the door and he's like, everyone fornicate. That's not how the devil works. (laughs) He's... (laughs) He's a little bit, I don't know why I used that example. That was bad. Should have thought that through better. (laughs) But the devil works a little bit more subtle than that. He's more manipulative than that. And the three main ways that the devil gets all of us to fall into sin is he appeals to three different things. The lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, and our pride, our arrogance, So listen, this is what basically says to all of us. And after I say this, think about culture, think about television, think about movies, think about all the temptations we face and see if they're not grounded in these three things. What the devil says to us is he says, doesn't that look good? Why don't you just try it? And if you do try it, you'll find out it gives you control. That's what the world tells us all the time. It looks good. It feels good. And if you will indulge in it, you will be in control of yourself. You can choose whatever identity, whatever destiny you want. These are the lies that the devil tells all of us. And he's been doing it ever since humanity has existed. Now, Jesus, of course, was prepared for this. He was in the middle of a fast. And so some people would see the fact that Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days and say, man, It had to be really hard to stand up to the devil when you were so physically weak. Though he may have been physically weak, he was spiritually strong. He was fasting, he was doing something, he was connecting to the Father, giving away the comforts of the flesh and focusing his spirit on the Father, what we've been doing during this fast, and we get closer to God during those times. So Jesus' first temptation, and this was an interesting one because he was hungry, was about food, it was about provision. And basically what Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to do was not to depend on his heavenly father, but you take your own provision into your hands. We are also tempted by this. Don't trust God with our money. Don't trust God with our careers. Don't trust God with our resources. We need to take those things into our hand. That's why more people don't give to the church. It's because we think we can handle our money and provide for ourselves better than what God can provide for us for. That was the first temptation. The second temptation was about power. The second temptation for Jesus was to be showy with his power, to test God by throwing himself off a building and have an angel scoop him up before he hit the ground. Again, this is another way that the devil tempts us. He tempts us with control. He tempts us with power and prestige, even in religious circles. Unfortunately, we see this a lot in Christianity right now in the United States. We call it the prosperity gospel, that there's all these clowns, these actors that you know, masquerade as pastors, and they get people to give them a bunch of money, and maybe they started off with good intentions in the beginning, but they end up buying $4 million houses and three or four jets, and they don't live like the congregation. They live way above it, right? And so we see even an abuse of power in religious circles. We see it in political circles. People that have power, but they're not humble and they don't submit to God, they abuse that power. That was the second temptation. The third temptation was to take the easy road. Again, we see this a lot in our culture right now. Satan took Jesus up to a very high mountain. He showed him the kingdoms of the world, right? It's like if the devil took one of us up to a very high metaphorical mountain and showed us Hollywood, California, showed us New York City showed us Paris and London, showed us, the, showed us you know, Dubai and showed us all these wonderful areas where it looks like everyone just lives so perfectly. And he said, I'll give you all these things as long as you just worship me, as long as you do what I say. What Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to do was to not go through the sacrifice of the cross. If you'll just give up the cross, right, I'll give you all these things. It's odd. The devil, he didn't even have the authority to give Jesus those things. Just like the devil tells us if we will just take the easy road, you don't have to live a certain way. You don't have to be righteous. You don't have to do what that book says. Just do what culture does and you'll be happy. You'll get to party all the time and have sex with all these people and do all these fun things. I'll give you these things. If you just do what I say and not what God tells you to do. But Jesus knew that he was there to be a sacrifice because the world would not change without a sacrifice. Listen, nothing good in our lives will happen without sacrifice. If we take the easy road, and that is the temptation of our culture right now, not just for young people, for all people, right? But I remember young people in particular, we get out of, high, get out of college at age 22, 23. We instantly want to live in a $400,000 house and drive a BMW and have all the things that it took our parents 40 years to acquire, but we want those things instantly. We want to work hard for them, right? I just want all these things. I want everyone to pay for everything for me, and I want to take the easy road and get all the benefits, and unfortunately, that's just not how it works, but that was a temptation. And so by Jesus quoting the word in context to the devil who was using the word out of context... And then for Jesus to look at the devil, and look, it's not even a struggle. He just says, leave. The devil leaves. And we see who the real authority is, right? We see who's really in charge at this moment. Devil, go away. And he does. And this is the last interaction we have like this in the entire Bible. So what do we learn from that? We learn from Jesus' example that if we spend time with God in prayer and fasting, we can overcome temptation doesn't mean we're not going to be tempted, but it means that when that temptation comes, if we have a relationship with God, we can say no to that temptation. The second thing we learn is we must read the word of God for strength. Jesus says it's not just by bread alone, but by everything that God tells us, the word of God. This book gives us power, strength, knowledge, wisdom. We need this book. And so we learn if we walk with God, if we have the knowledge of the Word of God, we will also have the authority in Jesus' name to tell the devil to go away. Let me get charismatic here just for a second, right? Still got a little Pentecostal floating through my veins. Well now. <laughs> and so oftentimes people will call me or, or, or call the church or get a hold of us, and they'll want a pastor to come to their church and, and bless their home, right? Now listen... I understand the heart behind that, or they'll ask us to come and, and, and pray for the home because you know, evil stuff has happened in the home or whatever the case may be. The devil's coming at them. Listen, um, I don't believe in hauntings. I don't believe that uh, the devil cares about the brick and mortar of your home. He doesn't. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy you, not your home. He doesn't care about your home. He cares about destroying you and your family. But here's the thing about that. If you follow the same Jesus I follow, if you read the same word I read, and if you have the same Holy Spirit that I have, which I hope you do, you, as the leader of your home, have every authority to say to the devil, you're not welcome in this home, right? You don't need me to come do it. You can do it. You are the pastor of your home, if you will. And every Christian in this room that has a relationship with Jesus has the authority in Jesus' name to say, in Jesus' name, devil, you got to go. And the Bible says he has to flee. He has to leave. All of you have that authority if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, as charismatic as I'll get today, I promise. (laughs) When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light and for those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. From then on Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So where did our buddy John go? John the Baptist. We got arrested. Even though John had affected, they say, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000-plus people got baptized in a very short period of time by him, even though a lot of people were impacted by John the Baptist, a lot of people had grown hostile towards John the Baptist, especially in the city in Jerusalem. Now, that kind of reached its, its, its uh, pinnacle or its climax when John called out the, the governor, the tetriarch, right, Herod, and told everyone that he had been committing adultery on his, on his wife. So he called out the leader of the area of Jerusalem and and brought to everyone's attention that he had been in an adulterous affair. So they lock John up, and we'll find out kind of what happens to him later on. But this is kind of the moment where John, the trailblazer, metaphorically hands the baton to Jesus. So now John's time has passed, and Jesus's time is about to begin, okay? So Jesus moves up north, I'm kind of from the north, so I like to tell people that Jesus was a Yankee. So Jesus moved up north, (laughs) and he started to work his way south. The reason he moved up north is because Jerusalem was not ready for his message yet. The city was not receptive to his message. But in the rural areas up north, they were a little bit more receptive to the message that was going on. So just because it was in the rural areas did not mean that it was that much better. In fact, in those rural areas, they had been bombarded by pagan armies. They had become extremely spiritual dark, a lot like the rural areas now. Not that they've been destroyed by pagan armies, but when you go out to rural areas like in Tennessee, it's where we have the most teen pregnancies. It's where we have the most drug use per capita. There's a lot of darkness in rural areas, even in our own state. But that's where Jesus went. So Jesus went to those kind of dark outskirt towns, And it says from Isaiah 9 that he came to bring light, that the people in those areas were not forgotten, that the light of the world was going out into those areas and starting to show them a new way. So I should have thrown a map up here. When you look at Jesus' travels, he didn't travel much. Israel, in, in light of the whole rest of the Middle East, is very, very small on a map. The whole country is about 200 miles in radius, right from top to bottom. So Jesus didn't even travel the whole thing. He spent a lot of his time from about halfway and then upwards. But Israel was the starting point. And his message of salvation and redemption and hope and peace was going to start in Israel. But as we're going to see, it's going to spread to the entire globe, okay, through his disciples. Now, his disciples, the ones that were going to take this to the entire world, were kind of an unlikely group of would-be leaders. And we're going to meet a couple of them right here. It says, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat. With Zebedee their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. So, as Jesus was walking along kind of this this coastal area, this, this kind of fishing community along the Sea of Galilee, he sees Peter and Andrew. They were fishing, and he said, Hey, follow me, and I'll teach you how to fish for men, or as my translation says, fish for people. Follow me, and I'll teach you how to do what you're doing. But we're going to catch the souls of people, if you will. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all in the family business. They were all fishermen. They were in an area called Capernaum, which would have been the home of our friend Matthew that wrote the book of Matthew, possibly Philip, who was another disciple, and Nathaniel. So several of these guys were from this kind of small fishing community. Now, Jesus chose some very unlikely leaders. and I'm going to get to that here in a second but the majority of the people that Jesus kind of brought into his team, if you will, and the, and the three closest of his friends were just pretty average guys. Um, these would have been guys that had kind of nine to five blue collar work. If they were married, they would have just gone home and you know, hung out with their wife, hung out with their kids, played some soccer in the front yard, maybe like you know, coached a little league team. They would have been just pretty average run-of-the-mill guys. But Matthew alludes that these men instantly left their careers, they probably made decent money, but instantly left their careers, instantly left, a couple of them left their father, might have left their families, to follow a rabbi, a teacher, that if they knew him, they didn't know him very well. Why in the world would these grown men leave their career fields, leave whatever was comfortable and follow a rabbi? If we're gonna understand why they would follow Jesus, we have to understand a little bit about Jewish culture because this doesn't make sense in our culture. So let's go back and let's learn a little bit about Jewish culture in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, the education system would have started about the same time our education system starts, about age five, right, about our kindergarten age. What would happen in their education system is from age five to 10, essentially grade school, right? From age five to 10, children would learn the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Let me hold this up for you. That's the Torah, okay, roughly there. In my Bible, that is 304 pages right there. Not only would they learn this, by age 10, most children would have that memorized, word for word. That's how well they would know the Torah, okay? At age 11, they would graduate from that And they would move on to the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the 39 books of the Old Testament. If you can see how thick that is with my Bible. If they were the cream of the crop, the elite, by age 16, they would have all 39 books of the Old Testament memorized. They'd have it completely memorized. Now, the cream of the crop, 16-year-olds, would go on from studying the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and then they would become apprentices, one-on-one apprentices with a teacher, with a rabbi. And they would do that until age 30, and they would go into the rabbinical system. They would be the, the cream of the crop, the elite of society. Now, at age 16, if you were not part of the elite, the cream of the crop, the smartest of the smart, the, the sharpest of the sharp, you would go into more blue-collar work, which is where most of us would end up. You would end up as a carpenter or a masonry worker, or in this case, a fisherman. And you could make a good living, but you weren't the cream of the crop. You weren't the elite. So the reason why these men would instantly drop their nets, instantly lay down everything that was comfortable them to run after a rabbi and follow them is in their society, it would have been the equivalent if you're sitting there working one day at your job and Bill Gates strolls by and goes, hey, you wanna be my apprentice? Well, yes, you're smart and worth billions. I would love to be your apprentice, right? So we would quickly quit our jobs and follow a guy like that. It was almost that kind of equivalent. In their culture, it would have made all the sense in the world to drop everything you had and follow a rabbi. And that's what these men did. So what we learn is this. Yes, God worked with all kinds of people through Jesus. He worked with the wealthy. We're gonna see later on, there's wealthy people that follow Jesus. There are extremely well-educated people that follow Jesus. We also see that the majority of the people, though, that Jesus worked with on a day-to-day basis were pretty average. Some of them even below average. Some of them failures, some of them uneducated, some of them hated like Matthew that wrote this book a tax collector. And the reason why Jesus used those kind of people was to show people how powerful the Holy Spirit was in transforming people. But he used anyone that would respond. What that means for us in here is this. You may have a PhD or you may not have any degree. You may make millions of dollars a year or you may be struggling to get by. If we are humble and want to be used by God, he will use anyone in this room. It doesn't matter what your status in this world is. If we are humble and teachable, he will use us. What's fascinating about the 12 disciples, one of them was a substitute, right? Because we know that Judas didn't end up so well. But it says in the book of Revelation chapter 21, these men that gave up everything to follow Jesus... Not only did they give up their comforts, these guys gave up their lives. The only one that didn't die an awful, horrible death was John, but John was boiled alive and thrown on an island, right, to be exiled. They all suffered greatly for their faith, greatly. But it says in the book of Revelation chapter 21 that the foundations of heaven are named after these men. Isn't that amazing? God not only saves us in this life, he not only blesses us in this life, but he's gonna reward us for eternity if we're willing to drop everything and follow him. I don't know how you guys would be, but if one of the foundations of heaven was named Corey, I would let everyone know. I don't know if Peter is doing that right now. Hey, do you guys see whose name's written on the foundation over there? It's Peter, it's me, right? That's how I would be, but there's probably not any pride like that in heaven, so, all right, last part. Now, Jesus began to go over all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So now Jesus is getting to work and he takes this team of kind of ragtag guys and he hits the road, right? For several months, he spends a lot of time up north and he starts to move south, right? He's gonna slowly start moving south over, over the period of a couple of years. And Jesus started off teaching in the synagogues. Why would he go to the synagogues? He would go to the synagogues because the people would listen to a rabbi. Even if they didn't agree with everything he had to say, people would at least respect him enough to listen to what he had to say. So he would go from synagogue to synagogue, and he would share about the kingdom of God and the, and the teachings that he was supposed to tell people. Now, the first priority of Jesus, and tr- Jesus traveling around was his message. Jesus talked about repentance. He talked about judgment. Jesus even talks a little bit about hell in the Gospel of Matthew, But his message was one of positivity, not of negativity. His message was one of hope, of light, of forgiveness, of grace, of restoration. One of the important things that Jesus teaches us in the book of Matthew is he teaches us that all of us are incapable of living up to God's standards without God's help. When Jesus came onto the scene, the people were so oppressed by the law. They were discouraged because they couldn't live up to the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus comes onto the scene. And when people were even arrogant because they thought they had lived up to the Ten Commandments, Jesus breaks their whole paradigm. People would say, well, I've never committed murder. I've never cheated on my wife. And Jesus would say things like, if you've ever hated someone, you've committed murder in your heart. If you've ever lusted after another person, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And Jesus was telling us that there's no way to live up to God's standards unless we depend on Jesus's holiness and Jesus's righteousness. And if we have a relationship with Jesus, we can be what God wants us to be. We can live up to where God wants us to live. And so Jesus came to do three things while he was on earth. And this is where we're going to hang out for the rest of our time together, right? I I got about 50 more minutes left and we'll we'll wrap this up. That was a joke, guys. Anyways, the first thing he came to do (laughs) was to proclaim the good news. Now, the proclamation is the large net. It's kind of what I'm doing right now. It's the the big news. It's the very simple lesson, but it's the very important message. It's sent out to the masses. It's an invitation. Hey, listen, your way of living is not working. God has a better way of living. It's this large net that is thrown out. And from the proclamation, some people will want to know more. Tell me more. What does Jesus want from us? What does Jesus expect? How do we have a relationship with him? And that moves us into the second stage, which was his teaching. Jesus's teaching was kind of the maturation process. This is where we first hear the truth and the proclamation. But if we're willing to learn who God is, who are we in God? What does God want from us? How do we have a relationship with him? That's when we get into the teachings, the word of God, right? That's what he came to bring us. Not only the proclamation, but the response to that, the teachings. And then from that, we have healing. Now, this is where it can get complicated, and in some churches, a a little squirrely, right? But healing is the result of hearing the proclamation and responding to the truth, to the teaching. Now, when we talk about healing, the first thing we always think of is physical healing, right? Sometimes we can't get beyond this flesh and bone when we think about healing physical healing. But healing comes in a lot of different ways. I dare say everyone in this room, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, we're all spiritually healed. We're saved. Our souls are restored. So it comes in spiritual healing. It comes in emotional healing. God gives us peace. He gives us comfort. He gives us counsel. There is emotional healing with God. There is relational healing with God. Jesus even goes later on in the book of Matthew to teach us how to mend relationships. There is relational healing through Christ. There is sometimes mental healing. Jesus heals people who have mental disorders, right? And sometimes there is even physical healing. Now, healing can come in a lot of different ways. It can come instantaneously. I've seen that. It can come over a long period of time. I've seen that as well. Healing can come in a group setting. Healing can come through the gifting that God gives doctors, right? I know many Christian doctors. I have a Christian uh, uh, doctor friend here in town that's a surgeon, works on shoulders, and she sees her gift as a gift from God that she is a, a, a part, a vessel for God to help heal people. Healing can come through changing how we eat. Healing can come through good Christian counseling. Healing can come from a lot of different ways in a lot of different ways. Now, healing can also be greatly misunderstood. There are a lot of churches that will take this passage we just read and it said that he healed every disease and sickness and they will twist and turn and create some bad theology that says when we're not physically healed, it's because we don't have enough faith. Now, don't get me wrong. There was a part when Jesus left a city and didn't do very many miracles because they didn't believe in him. They didn't have faith. But to say that we're not healed physically because we always lack faith is really, really dangerous and bad theology. I'll tell you why. It goes against Jesus himself. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's on his knees praying to God the Father. And he's praying because he knows he's about to get arrested and crucified. And this is, this is what Jesus says to God the Father. He says, if it be your will, let this cup pass. If it be your will, heal me of this. If it be your will, deliver me of this. And I think everyone knows how the story goes. He was not delivered from it. He was not healed from it. It was not the father's will to spare him from the cross. It was his will for him to go to the cross. So here's the thing when it comes to healing. I believe in healing, guys. Absolutely. 100%. But we have to be biblically balanced when it comes to healing. Here's the thing. It's not a question of if God can heal. It's a question of, will we still love him if he chooses not to? Everyone with me? I believe he can heal. And I pray if you were to come up to me today and say, I have something going on with my body, do you believe God can heal me? 100%, but I'm going to pray his will over you first. God, if it be your will, heal this person. And I have seen it happen, and I have not seen it happen. I hope this doesn't doesn't bother either one of the families. I don't think it will. There are two families that come here that have been coming here for a long time. And both of their children in one year were diagnosed with really severe cancer. One was two years old, uh, the young girl, and the young boy was 12. This church prayed. We fasted, laid hands on them, went to hospitals. It was a, a really, really rough year. Long story short, the little girl was healed of cancer. No cancer ever showed up again. She's been cancer-free for a long time. And then the little boy died. I remember standing in his living room with his family as he laid on the couch, lifeless, very terrible, Now, for anyone in this room that thinks that we're not healed because people don't have enough faith, I dare you to go tell that family that. The thing is, is their faith has probably grown exponentially because even though that child passed away, they have put that boy into the hands of God. They still have a great relationship with God and they still believe God can heal. But it is up to God's infinite wisdom that is beyond ours. And we have to lean on that. And that can be very difficult. The point of the healings in the gospel, though, were about the gospel. The reason why Jesus went to cities and healed virtually every, everyone that was there was not just because he wanted to help everyone physically, he wanted to point everyone to a kingdom to where everyone, everyone is going to be healed for eternity. And so we have to understand, guys, we're all gonna die. All of us are gonna die. The Bible says our lives are not promised to be long. We're not promised longevity. James says our life is like a vapor that comes out and dissipates. Jesus is gonna go on in Matthew to say, you don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring. In 2017, I did seven funerals for people under the age of 30 years old. Seven. In one year at this church, seven people under the age of 30. We're not promised a longevity, but we are promised that if we live for Jesus in this life, we will have a perfect body in the next that will never get sick, that will never die, that will never struggle with anxiety or depression or any of those things. But in this life, we have death because in this life, we have sin. Sin has been introduced into humanity, and because of that, there is death. But we have to understand that in the life to come, we will live in a completely healed state. Jesus healed on earth to bring awareness to a greater kingdom, it was a physical example of a spiritual principle that there is something beyond this life. And if we will live for Jesus now, we will go on to be in perfection for eternity. So back to these three things. Today, I don't know who needs to hear it. We talked a little bit last week about God's love, that God loves you. I'm gonna tell you, and, I, and again, I don't know if anyone needs to hear it or not, but I think someone does. Someone needs to hear in this room that God is trying to get your attention. Again, the book of James says that Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. Do you know what our problem is? And I'm not not placing blame on you because we struggle with it too. We are so stinking busy. We're so distracted. There is so much going on around us all the time that I believe God is knocking on our heart, but we have so many other things. We're multitasking so many other things that we don't recognize that God is right there. But I'm here to tell you, if you're in this room, you're the one that needs to hear it. God's trying to get your attention. God is trying to warn us that our ways will fall flat. Do you hear me? That if we do it the way that we want to do it, it's not going to end up the way we, we hope it's going to end. We have got to, as Jesus said, lose our lives in order to really find what living is. We've got to take this life and we've got to take our ideas, our directions, our concepts, and we have to hand it over to him and say, God, take this. I want to do what you want to do. And if we will do that, if we want to be better, if we respond to the call to to step out of our futile ways into his ways, If we want to change, we can move on to the next step. But some of you need to know today that God's trying to get your attention. And maybe today needs to be the day to at least respond, to say, I want to know more. Now, if you want to know more, and this is maybe where a lot of us in this room land, we need to get into the teachings of God, the teachings of this book. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this book. If we approach this book already thinking that we have all the answers, this book is just probably good for kindling a fire. If we approach this book with arrogance, already knowing where we stand on whatever the issue may be, if we are not teachable when we pick up this book, this book will be a complete waste of your time. It's no good to you. But if we are to approach the teachings of God with a humble and teachable heart, these words will absolutely transform your life. They will give you wisdom. They will give you knowledge. The power of the Holy Spirit will will give us the power to live the way that we're supposed to live. These words will absolutely change you. But there are men and women that that get their PhDs studying this book, and they don't believe anything that's written in this thing. That's why a lot of the divinity schools that people go to, most people come out having less of a relationship with God than they do going into it. Ask David Young, who has his PhD from the the, the theology school at Vanderbilt, and how many of those teachers don't even believe this book, because they go into it with arrogance. They go into it already knowing what they know. We have to step into that with humility and be teachable. And if we will step into that book with humility and being teachable, Jesus' teachings will help us live a fulfilling life, listen, that not only fixes this relationship, Do you know that six out of the 10 commandments are about how we interact with others? Not only will the words of that book heal this relationship, this vertical relationship, it will start to heal these horizontal relationships. We become better husbands. We become better mothers. We become better neighbors. We become better coworkers. We become better, if possible, politicians. We become all these things. We become better in whatever arena we're in better students, better teachers, better friends, better family. It starts to heal and fix this horizontal relationship. Through Jesus's teachings, through the word of God, if approached with humility, we start to find the things in this life that the world has found to be elusive. Things like peace. Guys, I'm not trying to be a jerk. Our government's not going to give you peace. Just because we're not at war doesn't mean that we're at peace. The only one that's ever going to give you peace is the Prince of Peace. That's it. There is no peace found in the worldly systems that we are in. The only peace you will ever experience is going to come from the words in this book. Through Jesus' teachings, we will find love. Not the shallow, bastardized, twisted version of love that the world tells you. We will find true love love that has substance, love that has integrity. Through the teachings of Christ, we will find contentment, not this fleeting happiness that comes and goes in the world around us. We will find a contentment that regardless of what happens to us, we have solace, we have joy, because we have him. And in a world that is looking for purpose, We have a culture now to where people will make dramatically less money at their job if they just have a sense of purpose, right? And that's not an altogether bad thing, but God gives us our ultimate purpose. We find out that we're not just matter that was, you know, birthed from stardust, that we are something greater than that. We're designed by God himself to be made in his image to have a purpose, to have a design and then the last thing is, if we will continue to go deeper, if, 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 we will, if we will accept the proclamation, if we will get in to the design that God has for our lives, we will start to experience healing. Now listen, there's always going to be sickness. There's always going to be death. Until Jesus Christ returns, until death is thrown into the pit, as the book of Revelation says, there's always going to be death and sickness. But if we will trust God, if we will live according to his word, Every single one of us in this room will start to experience healing. If no other place, we will feel it in our souls. And yes, we can be healed mentally, we can be healed emotionally and relationally, even spirit, or I'm sorry, even physically, but we will start to experience healing. And though healing may not happen, exactly the way we want it to all the time. If we have a relationship with God, we can rest assured that Jesus loves us. We can rest assured that he knows what's best for us. Even Paul said, right? I have a thorn in my side and I keep praying for God to remove it, but he hasn't removed it. But that didn't turn Paul away from God. It actually made him lean on God more. In your infinite wisdom, you have put this thorn in my side. We don't know what it was. People speculate, but whatever it is, God left it there for a reason. And it didn't push Paul away from him made Paul more dependent on him because Paul understood that, God, you know what's best for me. And we have to rest assured that this life is short. And it's what we do in this life that echoes forever and ever and ever. And if we give our life to Christ in this life, we will be healed for eternity. Eternity. Every time I walk up on this stage right over here on the wall, it says there's no tears, no death, no night, no crying. That's what our eternity will be. It will be perfect, perfect. And we just have to hold on until then. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're in this room and you just needed to hear that God is looking at you and he wants to talk to you. Maybe you're in this room and you know that God's looking at you. You know God wants to talk to you, but you have not gotten into this. You've not dove, dived into the word of God to know the teaching, to know what he expects out of us and who he is and what he wants to do for us. Or listen, maybe you're in here today and you need God to heal some relationships. Maybe you're in here today and you need some emotional healing. Maybe you're in here today and maybe you're sick and you need physical healing. Listen, whether God does it or not, we believe he can. Let's pray for it. Maybe you're in here and you're hurting, you're struggling. We're broken and we need God to fix us. If you're in this room and you need to respond to maybe a proclamation, maybe you got questions. This is Greg up here at the front. He's one of our pastors. If you're unsure, but you're curious, why don't you come up here and talk to Greg? If you don't know where you stand, but you're like, ah, something, you know, my life's not working the way it's going Is there something else? Why don't you come up here and talk to Greg? We have men and women at the front who would love to pray for you, for anything in your life you may need. Anything. Let's believe and let's trust God. And then the last thing we have is communion all the way around this room. (laughs) It says in the book of Isaiah that by his stripes we're healed. That can mean healed in a ton of different ways. But every time we take that bread and that wine, the body and the blood of Jesus, it reminds us that God sent his only son so we could be restored, so we could be saved. And even if not fully in this life, but in the life to come, we are all gonna be completely healed. Everyone is welcome to take communion as long as we ask God to forgive us of our sins. Father, Lord, I love you. God, wherever anyone in this room may be, be today, God, Maybe they just needed to hear that you're looking at them, that you want to connect with them, God. Lord, maybe they know that, but maybe they have not dug in deeper, and they need to do that. Maybe, God, there's some people in this room that are broken. They're hurting physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and maybe they just need to put that in your hands, God. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I don't want to freak anyone out. Man, I just feel like there's some people in this room that some people have hurt you and you need God to maybe heal up some of that stuff. Maybe the healing that you needed to hear about today wasn't a physical healing. Maybe it's these broken relationships that have really made you question yourself. Maybe you've even questioned God over those things. Maybe you need to hand that brokenness over to God today. Say, God, maybe it's unhealthy for me to be around those people, but I need you to heal this hurt. I need you to heal this bitterness, anger, maybe even hatred, guys. I think some of you need to let that go today. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this church, and I thank you for these people. Bless us, God, and keep us strong. In whatever way we need healing, God, Lord, please, Let us be humble and teachable and willing to accept that. We thank you, God. Bless my friends and family in this room in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys very much. You're welcome to help yourself.